First Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, but primarily focused on verses 18 to 21. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray together as we have a chance to turn attention to this this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask for your guidance and direction in our time. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you illumine our hearts that we would understand what you've gone to such trouble to reveal to us. Make it plain, plant it in us. Help us to recognize those things in our thinking and in our attitudes, our actions that are not in line with your truth. And then enable us through your Spirit as we step out in obedience to conform to your truth. Give us alertness of mind this day, I pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last number of verses, actually going back to verse 13, we've been talking about the need to be growing up in our faith. These verses, by the way, are directed toward believers, not unbelievers. Although every part of the Word of God is profitable to teach, and those who have not found Christ as Savior can benefit from hearing. But nonetheless, the, the focus since verse 13 onward has been on the Gospel. He's writing to those who are aliens. You're not an alien unless you've come to know Christ. You see, that's what's made us aliens or exiles in this world. Uh, we've been brought into a different kingdom altogether. But nonetheless, he's been talking to the aliens, and he says, listen, we need to grow up now in this wonderful, great gospel and salvation that the early part of the chapter was introducing us to. Uh, salvation is but the beginning of God's great plan for each of the lives of his children. We are saved to grow into disciples. We are saved so that we could be useful servants of the king. That's why, by the way, I'm convinced that Matthew chapter 28, the end, ends in the Great Commission passage. And the Great Commission passage is, the focus is on going into all the world, but it's on making disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, you can't make disciples until someone's been won to Christ. That's step number one. So it's certainly about evangelism, but it's not solely about evangelism. God's great intention is the building of disciples. And in verses 13 to 17, we saw three great commands tied to growing, moving ahead and on from salvation. The first of those, you remember that growth involved preparing our minds for action, girding up the loins of our thinking, getting our thoughts under control, planting the transforming word of God into our hearts and into our minds, and focusing our hopes on the proper focus, which is our salvation, not some sort of temporal deliverance or some sort of temporal prosperity. The second of the challenges and commands was that we were to be holy, choose to be holy in all of our conduct. We choose to act in a holy manner. 
We're not choosing to act in a holy manner in order to be saved. We could never act holy enough to be saved. We choose to act in a holy manner because we've become saved. New creations in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to choose to grow, in other words, or you're not going to grow. And God won't make the choice on your behalf to grow. Uh, You're the one that makes that choice. But once we choose, then the indwelling Holy Spirit becomes our enabling strength to carry out such choice. But God is not in the business of choosing on your behalf, whether it has to do with salvation or whether it has to do with growth. Those are choices that we make. And finally, last week, we were talking about the third of these commands, which was to conduct ourselves with fear. We learned that if if we call God Father, and we talked about what a privileged position that is, that the world is made up of people for whom God is their creator, not their father. The concept of the fatherhood of God has no biblical foundation. God is the Father for those who've been given the right to be called the children of God. And those who have been given that right are those, as John chapter 1 tells us, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they have been given the right to be called children of God. That's why back in the third chapter of 1 John, uh, the focus of that chapter begins by the wonder of being able to be called children of God. You know, what God has done for us as his children. Well, at any rate, if we can actually call God Father, which is the privilege only of the alien, of the exiled person, he says, well, if we we call him that, then there should be uh, some legitimate outcome of that. If we call God Father, we need to conduct ourselves with fear, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1.7, that beginning of true wisdom. The Greek word phobos, we looked at that last week. Looking at God with a sense of awe, sense of wonder, sense of proper dread, uh, a sense of wonder at the privilege of being his children because of what Christ has done, a sense of awe at the very nature of God as we grow to understand him as he really is, because the scripture makes it plain, his attributes and his works, and a sense of caution about displeasing the one who is now our father, not merely our creator. And he says there's two reasons for living in this fashion of conducting ourselves with fear. Number one, the truth of our inescapable accountability. Because we have a father who's impartial. He is, we've passed out of judgment into life in the sense of eternity. We we have salvation because of what Christ has done for us. But God says that which you've passed out of the judgment seat of, of God about, you haven't passed out of accountability. I'm holding you accountable before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus, the beam of Jesus, for how you've lived the discipleship walk, how useful you've been. Do you come through this, day, this era in this world as my redeemed child having nothing to show? Or do you have something to show? Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. What's left in your life? So the reality of inescapable accountability is a motivation to say, I'm going to choose holiness. I'm going to keep walking. I want to live in fear of the Lord. Not fear that I'll lose my salvation, but fear of the realities of accountability and having to be answering for the truth of it. And then secondly, and we ended with this, the motive is realizing the cost of salvation. Uh, That that cost involved the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick up our study today. Uh, Peter, under direction of the Holy Spirit, is continuing to examine the cost of salvation. And the point that God is developing for us is that 
If we're not giving ourselves over to remembering or meditating, in a way, on the true cost to make us children of God in the first place, we are not likely to be growing. It is focusing our thoughts and reflections on what the cost of our salvation was all about that kicks us out of complacency. It kicks us out of carnality. It's part of the reason that God puts in place for his people a frequent reminder of that cost as we share in the Lord's Supper. God wasn't just instituting some mindless religious ritual, although for vast numbers of people, that simply is a mindless religious ritual because they think there's some sort of magic in it. But no, no, he put it in place so that we would be forced to confront once again. What did it cost to save me, Lord? And we recognize the truth. We were ransomed by nothing less than the life of the Father's own Son. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 says, Since that's the case, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify the Lord with your body. (laughs) The case is you were bought. You were ransomed. And so you see the link to growth? Okay, glorify the Lord with your body. Nobody glorifies the Lord with our body if we're living self-directed lives. Nobody direct, uh, glorifies God with their body if they're not growing in their discipleship. Fed, they br- instead, they bring dishonor to the Lord. And so he says, hey, listen, you've been bought with a price. So verses 18 to 21 turn our attention to three dimensions of that price, uh, three truths about it that we're to meditate on, we're to reflect on these things, because it helps keep us balanced. The first of those we see in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Okay? Reflecting on the cost. I need to appreciate, and you need to appreciate, that you and I actually needed to be ransomed. The word ransom translates the Greek word lutro, which means... In obvious point, it means to release someone upon payment of a ransom price. You know, think of somebody. That's the picture. That's the meaning of the word. The Bible says that you and I were needing to be ransomed. We were captives. We were slaves, in other words. And God needed to do something that could pay a redemption price, a ransom price. Think of how it puts it in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Which, of course, shows that they had ignored all of their Old Testament history. Uh, They spent a lot of years in slavery in Egypt, and later on were carried off into exile into Babylon. So they, in fact, were slaves at a lot of period of time, just on the human sense. But at any rate, uh, he said, uh, We're the offspring of Abraham and never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus then answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Sin enslaves us. And by the way, don't misunderstand what Jesus is pointing to here. 
He's not simply saying that if you sin, you set in motion some patterns of life that could complicate your living and maybe increase your temptation to sin some more. That happens, but that's not what he's talking about in John 8. What he's talking about in John 8 is that once you've sinned, you've got nothing you can do about the consequence of that sin. That sin enslaves you in that you have an impossible problem before God. Because how does one get rid of the spot? How how does one change, once having become a sinner, into being looked at as if you were not a sinner? Do you follow that? And so you were really in an impossible circumstance. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And then he goes and he ends it, remember, in John 8, by saying, but if I set you free, (laughs) you're going to be free indeed. I've got an answer to this dilemma. Sin's... Reality in our life has created a hopeless slavery for people. Ephesians 2 talks about that because, remember, Ephesians 2 says, the reality of all of us, those of us who've been redeemed were once this way, everyone is this way. He says, you were all by nature objects of wrath. He says, you were all dead in your sins. There was nothing you could do to solve the sin problem. And as a consequence, Ephesians 2 says, you were without hope. And then he ends all of that by saying, and you were without God in this world. Talk about needing ransomed. (laughs) That's, That's the truth of it. And I have to keep reminding myself when I'm interacting with people in this world, not in some smug way, but just in a realistic way. I said, remind yourself, they're dead in their sins. They're without hope. They're without without God. Uh, They might be pretty nice guys, but that's the truth about them. They need from you, what they're not going to hear from somebody else, which is how to find freedom. How to break the slavery. How to find a forgiveness for what they can't solve. We all need ransomed, whether we admit it or not. Our slavery to sin, the consequence of having sin, is a problem none of us can solve on our own. The payment required is a payment we can't make. And so that's the true dilemma, isn't it? The consequence of our sin, what is required to solve it, is beyond our ability to address. It's sort of like you having a debt now placed on you that you don't have a chance in the world of paying off. Sort of like somebody coming to me and say, well, we decided in the last meeting of the, of the Senate and the House, we voted together on this, we decided to transfer all the indebtedness of the United States into your account. And you say, well, okay, go ahead and do that. I couldn't even pay for my indebtedness, so that might as well put it there. No, it's a hopeless situation. There's nothing I could do to solve what even the country can't solve, okay? That's the picture the Bible presents to us of sin. In its reality in our life, it's a hopeless situation. There's nothing that we can do about it. Mankind has no solution to the reality of sin's accountability. It has no solution to the reality of separation from God, which sin causes. And has no solution to the inevitability of facing before God judgment for such sin. Remember, as Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that... To face judgment. I mean, that's the absolute reality of human existence. We have to appear before God. 
all mankind had, the best they could come up with is what the Bible calls in ESV here, feudal ways. Feudal ways. Our forefathers, looking back, let's say, let's go back over history to the best that human beings can come up with. The best that human beings could come up with was feudal. <laughs> Think of the best thinkers that we have any record of going back. They couldn't come up with any answer to this problem. Anything they were suggesting ended up being futile. It's a sobering word, isn't it? Futile. Current humanity, which in the uh, unthinking attitude of many people is really progressing, isn't, but they think it is. Current humanity can't come up with any answer either. All they have are futile ways. Galatians talks about current humanity living in the futility of the darkness of their thinking. That's, that's the truth of it. There are no answers we're going to find in people, individually or in groups, who put their heads together to try to solve the most impossible dilemma of humanity. There are no answers there. It's all futile. No turning over new leaf. No becoming religious. No deciding to uh, put some endowments into some humanitarian projects solves your basic problem, which is the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. You can't offset that reality by some sort of compensatory action on your part. Without a solution... Sinners are cast out of the presence of God forever. We need someone to ransom us from the hopelessness of slavery. Slavery to the consequence of having rebelled against God. Ephesians 2, as I said, presents very fully that picture of that slavery and the disaster of it without hope, without God in this world. But Ephesians 2 also has this to say to us in verses 4 and 5. It says, but God. Two of the most wonderful words you can encounter in the scriptures. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. Because by grace you have been saved. We need a solution. And the only one who can do the solution is God. And God has given us a solution. I was thinking of how it's put in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to these verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. And so God begins here and he says, what I want you remembering and reminding yourself about is you need to appreciate that you actually needed to be ransomed. You actually needed to be redeemed. You needed something beyond what you could do. He says, so remember what you were and those apart from Christ still are. And remember where you are now and where they could be if they turn 
to this amazing answer from the one who said, but God, rich in mercy, has done something for us. So truth number one, appreciate all of us actually needed to be ransomed. Now, sometimes, believe it or not, I won't show a call for a show of hands here, but believe it or not, sometimes we can begin to drift into thinking we're pretty good guys. You know, you know. We may not say it out loud, but thinking, you know, we're one of the good people. You know, and, and the fact is, none of us were good people except what Jesus did for us, you see. <laughs> what we brought to the table was a basic zero, or minus even. Uh, what do we have that he hasn't given? Well, the second truth, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The first thing, I appreciate that I actually needed to be ransomed. The second thing is I begin to appreciate what it cost to ransom me. What was it? Nothing less than the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one word who was, came into this world, the word became flesh to dwell among us. The ransom price that's being described here from sin's accountability before God was nothing less than the blood shed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing less than that. It wasn't silver and gold. A lot of people in great deception in this world think maybe they can buy God off, you know, at some point. You know, maybe, maybe I'll leave my money in this direction and it'll make a difference. Or have some people, you know, go through some religious disciplines and activities after I die and maybe it'll change my outcome. Brothers and sisters, once you're dead, your outcome's settled. There aren't any worship service, aren't any masses, or anything else anybody's going to do. It's going to change what's happening to you. If it's been appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment, if you haven't passed out of judgment into life, you have no answer. That's it. I mean, game over. You're in trouble. But the gospel makes a difference for us, you see. And so he says, listen, you aren't ransomed of silver or gold. The ransom involved the blood of the Lord Jesus, his shed blood. Nothing less. The very Son of God had to die or you were going to be left hopeless and helpless and without God in this world. That's the bottom line. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life is a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for us. That's, that's where we come back to our first Peter. You know, there was a ransom. We were ransomed, but not with perishable things. The ransom cost was the life of the Lord Jesus. And lest you think that's not too important, I want to read to you out of Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where we have some exposure in God's word to the songs of heaven. What is being sung by the angels and the redeemed in the presence of the Father? Listen to this. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, talking about the Lord Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain 
And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Then you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I'd say if something's important enough to be sung in heaven, you know, it's like probably important, right? I mean, central lyrics. Uh, If God set it up so that we saw that heaven was singing about the wonder of a ransoming blood of the Lord Jesus, I'd say we better have some wonder about it ourselves. You know, we better be reminding ourselves. When we share in the Lord's Supper, as I said, we remind ourselves of the shed blood of the cross, that nothing else could be done for us. Here's the point. The second principle, only the blood of Jesus Christ solved our futile ways. Remember, the world had no answers. All they left were futile ways. They couldn't solve the problem. The blood, shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is what made the difference. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the one who is our perfect sacrifice for sin. He was the perfect Lamb, sinless, spotless, pure, without defect. And it was His shed blood, nothing else, that made forgiveness and justification possible for you and me. Notice how he puts it in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 25. For, verse 23, for all have sinned, And fall short of the glory of God. There's the great equalizer in all of humanity. And they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom God put forward is a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, a payment. God put Him forward. His blood was a propitiation for our sin. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And our response to it is to be receiving it by faith. Say, I need it. I want it. (laughs) I'm turning to the Lord for it. And turning away from my own deceptions and dismal efforts at trying to somehow solve the impossible problem. I'm only going to solve it through the Lord Jesus Christ. This one who is the propitiation by his blood to save us, is the one who First John chapter 2 tells us, now for his redeemed children, ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews tells us that in First John chapter 2. It explains it. He says, little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he's talking to believers here, not unbelievers. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Same thing we're seeing here. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We've become sinless, spotless, pure, and without defect. (laughs) In God's view, clothed with the righteous life of Christ because He, His shed precious blood, made that possible. And by the way, that's why unapologetically, we sing a lot of songs about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that 
I, I began to see spoken about, let's say over the last 20 years, different people talk about how can we connect to the world around us. And one of the comments that came back from that is, no, we need to be working on our music. You know, let's get rid of some of these songs. Talk about the shedding of blood and the washing of the blood. I mean, that, that just puts people off. You know, let's, and I'm thinking... That's the only thing that saves them. You wipe that out of your songs. You got nothing, man. You got nothing. They might as well sing a Hindu dirge. I mean, you got nothing. The only thing you have is the fact that there's one who loved us enough to come into this world, to live, to die, to shed his blood on the cross, because we were such pieces of work. Nothing less than that was a solution to us. And nothing's changed. Everybody you're trying to reach for Christ is still a piece of work. And unless they come in humility and say, I am a piece of work, I'm helpless and hopeless, I need what Jesus did to solve what I can't solve, we got nothing for them. I don't care whether they keep coming to church, I don't care whether they even show up on Sundays to sing, they're not going to be singing the heavenly song we talked about, because they will be excluded from the presence of God forever if they have not repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? I mean, that's what he is saying. And he says, remind yourself about that stuff, not to feel smug and proud about yourself, but to see the true situation. I was lost apart from him. The people I care about are lost apart from him. Makes sense we better talk about him. Makes sense we better share what is not a futile message, but a saving message with people. Well, the third truth, he says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Here's the third truth. Christ's death for us was actually part of God's eternal plan. It wasn't like things turned out badly and then God came up with some alternative solutions. Throw that out of your thinking, if you think that was the case. Because here it says, he was foreknown before the very foundation of the world. Our Heavenly Father had a plan to solve our sin before Adam and Eve sinned. The cross, the shed blood of the very Son of God, a word made flesh to dwell among us was foreknown and chosen and picked out by the Heavenly Father before creation happened. Before the foundation of the earth. Now you say, I find that kind of difficult to totally grasp. Well, I do too. Not because I don't see it to be true, but if you say, do you understand all that that's about? I'll say, well, no, because... It's the old problem of puny brain again. I can't quite grasp all of that, but I can grasp enough to know this was no last minute's thing. This wasn't like God looking at it, biting his nails and saying, oh, the world's just going crazy. What can we do? What can we do? No, 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 no. God, God knew what humanity would do apart from him, and he had a solution. Now, here's the point. Why would he care? Why would he care? Why would he put in place in his plan a solution before it was even needed? And I think we get a little picture of that in the second epistle of Peter in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 9. Listen to these words. God's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. 
but that all would reach repentance. Why did God have this plan foreordained and in place? Because of the amazing fact he actually wants me to be saved. I mean, I find that even tougher to totally grasp than the idea that he had a foreordained plan. Why in the world would he do that? And the psalmist said, who am I? <laughs> that God would care about us. I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing. And yet the truth of the matter is, we, we have a saving God. Actually wants us to be saved. And took nothing less than this answer to do it. And God said, this eternal answer, foreknown before the foundation of the world, was now made manifest for us. Remember, we started in 1 Peter by talking about the, how the prophets and the angels were seeing little pieces of what would come. And they were motivated to try to get to the center of it all. They longed to see how it would all unfold. It was all made manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, we saw God's great answer. It was manifested. The incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection, the gospel. We see the eternal plan made plain. And by the way, if this was an eternal plan in the making of God, there's nothing you can do to improve the gospel. There's nothing you can do to repackage it in a way that will make it more palatable to our community. This was God's eternal plan. He had the prerogative to repackage if he decided that was needed. Uh, instead, he said, no, this is the plan. This is the message. I want you to be my spokesman. Remember, we're his ambassadors in this world. You share with them, plead with them to accept the reconciliation that can be found nowhere else except in the Lord Jesus Christ. Challenge them about it. And he ends that member in 2 Corinthians 5 by saying, because he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. What great wonder in all of that. And notice how he puts it here. All of this foreknown before the foundation manifest in these end times for the sake of you. Now, once again, who are we that God is mindful of us? But it was done for the sake of you. I mean, underline that phrase in there. That ought to have more question marks around it of bewilderment for you. Why in the world would he do all of this for me? Just, it's okay to be bewildered by such things. As long as we grasp the truth of it. Why would he do it? I don't know. For our sake. The cross was rooted in God's love for a lost world. So while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us, as Romans 5 makes plain. All this was done for the sake of you. And you know what is the most echoing, sad refrain in, the, in eternity, I believe? This phrase, it was done for you. And people saying, I didn't accept it. All this was done for you, because there was no solution to your problem, and people saying, I didn't accept it, I didn't act on it. <laughs> How would you like to go into eternity with that echoing in your head? I didn't do it. All done for me, <laughs> I didn't act on it, I didn't do it. 
You see, it's only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we find God's grace and forgiveness. This eternal plan that we're looking at here, that God says, I want you to meditate on this. This is going to be part of your motivation to move forward as a disciple. He says, this eternal plan is the only way to the Father. Notice how Jesus put it in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. I'd say that's a pretty exclusive statement, wouldn't you? It's repeated, by the way, in a similar way in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. I'd say pretty solid, pretty straight. <laughs> How about you? You know, that is the answer. It's the solution. It was done for me. Even if nobody else ever responded to it, it would have been been done for me. Because I needed to respond to it. Just like everyone here does. And then he ends here by talking about the resurrection. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The resurrection approved all of this stuff we're talking about. That's why Romans chapter 1 begins as it does. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the very son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So all of this stuff we're talking about, the resurrection became the confirmation of it. That's why we encounter it here in 1 Peter. God says all this stuff's true. The resurrection shows it's true. It's why in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is why our faith isn't futile. The resurrection is the rising and falling. We're going to talk more about that on Easter, which is only a month away, by the way. And, uh, because that day, celebrating the resurrection, shows why it's true. So here's the bottom line. Decide to place your faith and hope in God, not in your own goodness. Don't trust in anything you can do. Instead, see, there's nothing I can do. And in desperation and in slavery, I call out to the one who can ransom me. And he says, I want to ransom you. I'm not willing that any would perish. I want to save you. But I can't save you without repentance and faith on your part. Turn from your self-reliance. Receive what I've done on the cross for you and rest in that. That is the gospel, by the way. That's what it's all about. We're not trying to trick people into some emotional experience. It's just simply saying, that was what your circumstance is. This is what God did about it, and here's what you need to do about it. Will you do something about it? Will you repent and believe the essence of God's redemptive plan for you and I? I'd say it's pretty powerful stuff, really. And God says the more you think about it, the less comfortable you are with carnality and complacency as a believer. The more you think about it, the more you say, boy, I better mean business in my life now. I've been been bought with a price. And I better be serious about my faith and grow in the wonder of it. I pray that's the outcome. And if there's any here today that have not done that choice, don't don't go into eternity with that echoing thing. All this was done for you, but I didn't decide to take it. Make sure you take it. Make sure you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Happy to talk with anyone further about that afterwards that would like to.
Well, let's end our time together in a, in a song. Our biggest problem as we study the Word of God is like, where do you stop? You know? how, how much more do we unfold in it? There's so much there. Well, good to be together this day to do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together on this day. We thank you for the wonderful privilege that is ours because of what Jesus did for us. We don't deserve it, but we thank you for it. And that this wonderful plan was part of your unfolding plan before the creation. And you did it for us. Unbelievable. Be with us in this day. Encourage us in our walk. Be at work in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.